0: Welcome to Full and Frank, a series of podcasts from Aquis Exchange, spanning the worlds of finance, politics, sport, and the media.
1: Hello again, and welcome to this Full and Frank podcast on behalf of Aquis Exchange. And uh, I'm joined, I'm Michael Wilson, and I'm joined by my very good friend, David Buick. David, welcome Welcome to the podcast. Hello. And we are joined by one of the well how can we put this one of our lifetime's foremost military figures he's Major General Julian Thompson. Welcome to our podcast and uh, look forward to talking to you just before we start to get onto your career. What, how did you begin? Did you always want to go into the military?
2: Yes, I had ideas of going to military, but I eventually settled on the Royal Marines. For the very good reason that my left prop and right prop in my house rugby team joined the Royal Marines as national servicemen. <laughs>
1: <laughs> <laughs> and and they, they were they were with you as you started, were they? Or uh, did, did you join as a gang, as it were?
2: Well, no. In fact, I joined as a regular. They joined as national servicemen. But I found them at Limston, where I did my basic training. And so the front row of the Limston scrum was the Sherburn front row.
0: That's terrific. <laughs> <laughs> can i just ask while we're on that subject um was it as tough to get into the marines then as it is now
2: well i think i think it is was it, not as tough in my day i don't think because uh they were taking more people uh the national service was on as well so everyone had to join something and i don't believe it was i think actually it is tougher now i don't believe ira got in now i was too immature i was only 18 in fact, I was eighteen in a week or something like that, whereas now most of the guys who join join at about as officers join at twenty plus and, and many of them have actually been to university and are more mature. We were a very immature bunch actually looking back.
1: but at the, at the same time you had you had very serious work to do almost straight away, didn't you?
2: Yes, we did, because we were in in that period just after the Second World War, which I call the withdrawal from empire period, where you had, for example, when I joined, Korea was in full swing. Malaya was in full swing. Uh, We were sent to Egypt uh, to take part in a counterinsurgency campaign. So I never went to Korea or Malaya, but it was all there going on.
0: Were you there at the time of the Suez Canal?
2: Uh, no, I, I missed the Suez. I, I was doing a machine gun course to my fury. All
1: my mates went off and I missed it. I thought, oh God, I have missed it. Oh, many, then, many, people, many, many people talk about the the the, 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 the sort of the, the lack of black and white as, as there is these days. But well, I, I guess after the end of the Second World War, Britain was similarly, was it looking for a kind of role in, 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 in the world, do you think?
2: No, I think it had a role in the world because, after all, we had a large army in Germany facing the Russians because the Russians were a real threat then at that stage, just after the, the, the war. And then we had a lot of things going on with, as I said before, there was the Korean War, which was a pretty serious war. At the same time as Korea was going on, there was an emergence in, in, in Malaya where we were fighting Chinese communists in the jungle in Malaya. So there, there was a lot happening. And the services were large in those days, I mean, really big, I and mean, the army was over a million strong.
0: Good heavens. What, in the United Kingdom? Yes. Yeah. I'd forgotten that. And then, of course, after that, which, of course, didn't uh, incur the services of the United Kingdom, of course, there was the Vietnam War as well, wasn't there? Which,
1: yes, which you we know,
0: kept out of, oh, thank yeah. God.
2: And, and uh, Harold was one of the good things he did was keep us out of Vietnam. And then we had observers there, which were quite interesting. Uh, Who were able to tell us? And and we kept a very close eye on the Vietnam War because when I was in the Far East, there was always a chance that the Vietnam War would spill over into Thailand, with which we had uh, an agreement under Southeast Asia's treaty organization. Mm. And so we kept a very close eye on what went on in Vietnam, just in case we got involved on the fringes of it.
1: When, when, when you read histories these days of what happened in Vietnam, it, it's pretty obvious that, that America got involved and after the French got away, should, they should have learned the lessons of the French and they didn't, they got, they got involved themselves. At the time, do you remember people like you saying, just as you've just said, really, thank goodness we're not involved in this, or was that a general feeling?
2: I think it was a general feeling, in fact, actually, we and the Americans, I believe, miss um, uh, placed the Vietnam War in that it was actually a war for the freedom of their country and was overlaid with a communist um, uh, message, if you, if you like. So actually, you see, you were trying to get in the way of people who wanted their own to rule themselves, which was a fairly reasonable thing to do.
0: There's always been something, Julian, very romantic for a civilian like me about the Royal Marines, the fact that there was a lot of, appeared to be cloak and dagger stuff and small boats going off with maybe a dozen men to do a, s- a, special, um, uh, in- a special mission. Is that is that uh, a fair assessment or is it ridiculous?
2: Well, no, that's
0: part of the Royal Marines. But the, the main job of the Royal
2: Marines throughout the period I was serving was was providing a brigade to take part in amphibious operations if necessary and also fighting the wars that were going on. So we found ourselves, for example, in, in uh, Cyprus, as I did, uh, just doing counterinsurgency in the mountains of, of the Trudos Mountains, alongside dozens of infantry battalions. So you're doing an infantry job, really, because the Royal Marines cannot afford, in my opinion, and ever to say, look, that isn't for us, old chap. We don't do those sort of things. We're far too grand to do those sort of things. And that's the road to perdition, because in the end, the, people say, well, you're, what are you doing? Get out. You've got to do. You've got to be a, a, a regiment for all seasons. Whatever comes your way, you've got to do it.
1: awful well, great what were your first Sorry. thoughts when the um what, what were your first thoughts when something which those th- those those were wars going on away from here, but suddenly when the Falklands arose, it was at a, a crucial point. I remember it very well myself and, and you know being quite trepidatious about what was going to happen because it seemed to have a, a massive influence on, on the future of this country, which it which it clearly would do and and it and it, and it did. When you get that sort of right, you're off, what, what are your thoughts about it?
2: Well, at the time, we never thought it would happen because we were told um, that Britain would do nothing about it. I mean, the Foreign Office advice was to Margaret Thatcher, don't get involved. And the MOD advice, because the MOD had done a study before the war, i.e. in November the year before, where they'd come up with the, the idea that it was a silly thing to do and it was impossible so actually the, the 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 thing had been marked it or been put in a box marked mission impossible. They did opened open the box and said, do it. So it came as a huge surprise to everyone. I I never thought we'd do it to, until I was told at two o'clock in the morning,
0: do it. I mean, when we before we came on air, Julian, I I was fascinated here because I suggested to you that Falklands actually wasn't strategically that important. It was just really a question of Argentina against the UK. And you put me firmly in my place. Could you just explain to the listeners why the Falklands was actually strategically very important?
2: Well, if you close the uh, not the Suez the Panama Canal, which you could actually do quite easily by just even pretend to do it. Sorry, we the big mistake. We jammed a tanker across the locks and closed it. You've closed off the communications by sea between the Pacific and the Atlantic. And uh, I always think that uh, it's very fortunate that Argentina did not possess the Falkland Islands, for example, during the Second World War, because they might well have given the Germans a base there, bearing in mind they were pro-German. And von Spee in the First World War was trying to capture the Falkland Islands as a coaling station when he was stopped by the, by the Royal Navy. So it's actually a highly
0: strategic place. Did you expect uh, at any time, because there was a lot of to and fro, as I recall, of Alex Hague, who I think was Secretary of State and uh, Ronald Reagan's government, toing and froing for diplomatic conversation. Do you think the Americans ever even dreamed of getting dragged into it?
2: Well, I, I think they didn't ever dream of getting dragged into it. In fact, some of them, including, I can't remember the name of the, the woman who was uh, their rep with the uh, United Nations, who <clears throat> was trying to talk them out of it. But they realized that they should back up an ally. And my goodness me, they did back
0: us up. They were hugely helpful, the Americans, there's no doubt about it. Oh, that's fascinating. I think... I think Michael and I, and I think all our podcast listeners would love to know, what was the Falkland Islands like? I mean, looking at it, it looked absolutely desolate.
2: Well, it's it's like a very wet version of the Scottish Highlands, um, and it's all peat bog. And in those days, there were no roads whatsoever in the Falkland Islands, except in, the, in in Stanley. And you couldn't drive a Land Rover across this peat bog at any sort of pace. I mean, an unloaded Land Rover would, take, would advance at sort a of, speed of about four miles an hour, uh, and as well as peat bog, it was covered in what I call these dinosaur spines, huge, long rock ridges. Not mountains like Norway and the Alps, but uh, but mountainous enough to be very difficult to, to cover. And bearing in mind that uh, you didn't have any wheel transport at all. And so the only way to go places was by helicopter or on foot. And quite a lot of my guys marched something like 60 miles from where we landed to uh, Stanley. And it took us for several days to do that, uh, carrying up to 100 pounds a man. Uh, and because it was so fit, my, my marines and my parachute soldiers, I don't believe any other army in the world could have done it it's as well as we do.
0: Well, I, 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 I beg to differ, I think, without good leadership, which brings me on to the next point on, on this thing is that, you know, we heard in the newspapers, you know, people like Admiral Black and Sandy Woodward and Jeremy Morse from the army's perspective, Tell us about the people who, in my opinion, are the people who got their fingernails dirty, people like Mike Clapp from the the Navy, who you, I think, were very closely associated with. Was the relationship between the services brilliant at that time?
2: Well, Mike Clapp and I ate every meal together for seven weeks, and we never had a quarrel, so that says something. Uh, and I've actually had some big quarrels with naval officers in my time because the Royal Marines do a lot of work with the Navy. And sometimes we don't get on very well, dare I say it. <laughs> Mike Clapp and I got on very well. He's a superb guy. He had something like three ship commands and he commanded the Buccaneer Squadron. He was, he was a highly competent uh, observer in the fleet air arm, a, a fine seaman and a great guy. And I really got on with him and and, he's his his friend to to this day. Uh, But I can say that I, have because I'd been the chief of staff of that brigade before, I've seen bad relations too. And when they go bad, it's sad because it absolutely messes up the whole thing. It didn't happen in our case,
0: I'm glad to say. Well, certainly 10,000 miles away. That is certainly not what you want to have. Michael, come on in.
1: Opinion about... Colonel H and, and the Victoria Cross varies, doesn't it, about how he was, uh, I mean, this, and this, this is no disrespect to a, a man who was clearly a very brave man. But at the same time, uh, some people were saying, you know, he went ahead, wasn't really prepared in the same way that, um, that Royal Marines tend to prepare for what happens. What, what was what was your feeling about all that? Because I can tell you here it was it was obviously a massive story. Well, H I knew and I met him
2: before. Uh, when I'd served in our Northern Ireland, he was on, on the staff of the brigade we were under. Uh, he was a very fine man. And in fact, his great legacy was the training that he gave that battalion, which enabled it to do what it did once he was dead. And I will not uh, entertain any criticism at all because he was under huge pressure. And one of the reasons he was under huge pressure was I didn't give him the resources he asked for to carry out that battle. He asked for light armor and I refused to let him have it. And I should have actually really resourced that battle by taking another unit down there and commanding it myself, not in order that I would do it better than him. But if we'd we'd have been through that place like a knife through butter with two commanders or two battalions plus some light armor, and I under-resourced H, so I cannot turn around and say, look, why did you do it that way? The reason was he was under huge pressure to do it and get it right. And... He went forward because he deemed that he needed to be there and he as a CO deemed it and I'm not going to criticise that ever uh, and he was killed and many COs have been killed. There's no rule that says a CO can't be killed. I can quote many examples of COs being killed in war uh, where they have to go forward when things are getting sticky and show an example and he died
0: doing that. Strategically when you say he was under-resourced because of your leadership Presumably, these resources were needed elsewhere, and it was a matter of judgment. Well, thoughts. actually, the reason was that we were ordered to do Goose Green, which, in my opinion, was a complete waste
2: of rations doing it, dare I say it. My um, uh, intelligence guy, who was a highly experienced soldier, said, look, Goose Green is a self-administering POW camp. Leave <laughs> it. And what we had planned to do was a raid to draw their eyes away from the way we were going, which was round the northern route, uh, and, and make them think we were going to use the southern route, i.e. through uh, uh, Darwin and Goose Green and Fitzroy. Mm-hmm. And that was the aim of a raid. And then eventually I was summoned by John Fieldhouse, who was the task force commander, to this sat who said, why, well, why have you cancelled Goose Green? I said, because we're busy trying to get onto Mount Kent to do the proper thing, go the right way. And he said, you're under criticism, you're to... Uh, uh, capture goose green and i said you mean capture it and he said yes well wow. so that was what i was told to do and of course it was a, it was if you think of where we landed as the center of a clock we should have been going towards three o'clock and we were being drawn down to six o'clock
0: on the clock so it was a it was a diversion which was unnecessary um moving on on from there i mean it was a tremendous uh, victory down there i mean people Just I remember at the time markets were all being from the city with Michael and I both were from a different Mm -hmm. point of view. Uh, Interest rates and various other prices of stock markets were up and down like a yo-yo for the simple reason that nobody actually ever thought you guys would put it off down there. It was an amazing uh, result, but it also probably bought Thatcher more time. And she presumably fed off that to the degree that our forces which are generally regarded as the finest pro rata of the number of people in the world, um, did her a tremendous favor.
2: Oh, yes. I mean, I think she definitely benefited from it. Um, and I'm not, I don't, I don't grudge her that at all. No. I, I admired her. I met her, I'd never met her before, but I met her later when I was doing another job. Um, and I got to know her reasonably well. Um, and uh, she was a, a great woman, a great lady, and she was admired hugely by the armed forces. And the great thing about her was she, just, she wasn't afraid to confront people
1: who uh, love would sort of do this. <laughs> she did it back. Well, I know. I think that's <laughs> right. Michael? Uh, can we just con- continue with politicians just, just for a little while? I'm just wondering, so, yes, the, she, she got the admiration of the armed forces. Uh, if, you, if you're working under, if I can put it like that, a politician whom you don't particularly admire, you just have to get on with it, don't you? Yes, you do. And, in fact,
2: it's quite wrong to, to give the impression that I was talking to her personally. I, I never spoke to her before uh, the end of the war. I never spoke to her. Uh, she didn't, and she's very good, I'm told, by those who were in her war cabinet at taking advice, and she'd argue with things, but once she was told, look, this is the way, Prime Minister, she got on with it. And uh, she ran a wonderful war cabinet, and she actually told me years later I wouldn't have anyone from the Chancellor of the Exchequer's Department because they would say no. <laughs> I love that. I love that. In fact, of course, people learned that lesson later. I mean, Tony Blair learned that lesson with Gordon Brown. He was running with Trump and he said, I'm going to invade
0: Iraq. And Brown was sort of saying, I believe you can't have the money to do it. Now, I've also heard from people like Charles Guthrie that that was very much the case. Yeah. Um, Moving on, because we could sit here and chat to you all day, Julian, but I'd like to just move on. You you, tired the. Uh, level of major general responsible for training reserve forces and special forces of the Royal Marines from 83 to 86. First and foremost, what did that entail? But then I really want to move on to your books, and military right. history. Well, what it entailed was
2: uh, three things. One was looking after the Royal Marine Reserve. Secondly, was looking after all Royal Marine training. And the most interesting thing was uh, was uh, being in charge of the UK's Maritime Counterterrorism Force, which was a combination of SPS and other specialists, And that was the occasion when I used to go and brief uh, the Prime Minister as to what was going on. And in fact, we gave her a demonstration of how we would take back a hijacked ship. Uh, and we did it in daylight, we had done it at night, and the point of the story is that the Herc dropping the boat, because you drop a boat over the horizon and then catch the traps up, had to do it in sight, and we nearly had the boat dropping on us. And I looked up and I suddenly saw this boat descending on where we were standing on the flight deck of this RFA, and uh, the headline went through my head, Marines kill Maggie. <laughs> 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 anyway, she didn't get killed. but. Uh, uh, so she was very interested in all that. Because I said to her, one of the big threats is is is, is taking a, a liner, because you've got on board hostages, and a liner has far more uh, endurance than an airplane. It doesn't have to go and land to fuel, etc. And 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 of course it did happen with a thing called a
0: laro a few weeks later, which was interesting us. But there there again, there, a liner is more of a sitting duck as well, though, isn't it, in oh, some yes. respects? Oh, yeah. yes, it is. It is it, but it's,
2: it's always quite a, a, a tempting target for terrorists.
0: You've written some great books, Julian, and uh, first and foremost, I'd like to ask about two. First and foremost, um, for No Picnic, and then this wonderful illustrated book that you showed me before, mm-hmm. which I'm sure many of our podcast uh, listeners would love to have. I can't tell you, it's absolutely brilliant. And also to lead us on to another question to ask you about what the great leaders of the, in the military were. So so tell us why you went into writing books. And,
2: and well, I always wanted to write. Um, and uh, the uh, Leo Cooper in those days ran oh, yes. his own company, came to me when I was still serving and said, write about the Falklands. I said, I can if I can write. I said, yes, you can. He went to the staff college. <laughs> which, of course is no qualification at all. Just
0: to interject here, very good. Uh, Leo Cooper was married to Gilly, Gilly Gilly Cooper. Julie Cooper, yes. And Leo, you know, was, the... yeah, was running a, uh, his own. Uh, well, he had a wine stable. business and, and other things. Yes, he his did. Work? Yeah. He was a great guy, and he said
2: he said it to me. And I, you need an agent. I was dancing with her at the Frankfurt Book Fair last week. So I'm. So he really propelled me into it. And I, I wrote the book, which of course had to be cleared by the MOD because mm-hmm. I was still serving at the time. So I have had to update it since quite considerably in order to be slightly more frank in certain areas and, uh, can, and put in new information that I've g- garnered since. So that was my first book called No Picnic. I called it that because at my orders group before we landed, I said to everyone, this will not be a picnic, but we're going to win, I'm confident,
0: and it wasn't a picnic. Is it is it more of a, a directory of of how the Marines should operate and have, has operated in the past and should do so in the future, or is it a story?
2: It's a story. It's a story of, our, of how we got into this, and, and it's really a story of, of my
0: brigade, the third commander brigade in the Falklands Islands. Fantastic. Now, this other book, let's oh. I'd like to show Michael and also other people that it's called Masters of the Battle. Battlefield. Battlefield, it's, it's an incredible book. The, there
2: is an earlier edition which has pull-out maps, but unfortunately when they put them in libraries, people pinch the pull-out maps. <laughs> so now they have the maps on the page. And, and one of my most favorite generals is a chap called Suvorov, who was a Russian, um, who was put into the army at age 12 by his father, who was a general in the Russian army. And usually the Russian generals um, promoted their sons to general when they were about 20, he made Suvorov continue in the ranks until he was 24. And Suvorov was a funny little man who was very brave. He never lost a battle. He was the only imperial commander of whose portrait it was permitted to have on your walls if you were serving in the Soviet army during the Second World War. And Stalin created a special order called the Order of Suvorov. Uh, and he never lost a battle. It was a wonderful chap. He used to do handstands naked in front of the troops and things like that. It was quite crazy. He asked one soldier, How far is it to the moon? And the soldier knew perfectly well Suvorov hated people who said, I don't know. He thought for a minute, he said, For Suvorov, two campaigns. (laughs) Love that. He's my favourite general. I think uh, he really is. Tell us who else, over the years, that you've
0: admired, Julian. Well, mean?
2: I admired uh, Wellington and Marlborough, particularly. Marlborough, of course, had a huge fan of command, greater than anyone ever has done since. Um, and then there's Napoleon, of course, who one admires but also is a bit wary of because he was pretty prodigal with his say his soldiers' lives. Uh, slim, I admire hugely. Who convert, I think he's in fact a greater commander than Monty. He took yeah. over an army that was in great uh, disarray, retreating, uh, and then he turns it round and, and uh, goes down and recaptures. He never gets the accolade, though, does he quite? He never gets the accolade. He's rather, he was rather, do you know that he was nearly relieved of command towards the end by. Um, uh, the the chap who came as the, the overall commander of the armed forces in in, in the Far East, but who had a, a rivalry with him, and and, he, and when the chief of the general staff learnt about this, he ordered him to be reinstated. Talking of the Far East, was was General Patton somebody that you respected? Patton is someone I respect, and then he, I was thinking about Patton. Soldiers used to boast about the fact they served under him, but they didn't actually like him all that much. Uh, he was pretty prodigal of their blood, and, and, and uh, he, was, he was a bit of a, bit of a, a flannel, I think, old pattern. Yeah, I mean, he comes
0: across that way, but yes, he yeah. certainly had a, I a wouldn't representation want, to say, I wouldn't want more than no. no. Thank you, no.
1: <laughs> <laughs> could, could, I, could I take you into the, the, the modern day now? Um, and we, we, we stand at this amazing crossroads, don't we, and Britain's having to find a role for itself in the world and all the rest of it after Brexit. And we have this great unknown called China. I won't start with Russia, but let's 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 do China first, if I may. What do you make of it? I as I'm a financial journalist. David is a financial commentator. We both sort of agree that we, we take everything that China says with a huge amount, huge dose of salt. We have no idea what's going on. We fear it slightly. We, there may be some kind of cooperation. Can't see it right now. What's your feeling about China?
2: But I think they are absolutely determined that by uh, 2049 they're going to be back as the top dog. It's 100 years since they, the Communist Party, and they, that's what they do. And they're very crafty in the fact that they... Uh, are actually getting themselves into countries that need help, like Sri Lanka, then they find themselves having a base there. They're all they, over Africa as They're well. all over Africa and, and they're all over the West Indies. I mean, in Barbados, they've just taken over there. And I think the Barbadians mm-hmm. will regret it, I dare say, because in the end, what they do is they get people in hot to them financially and they say, oh, we'll put it right, um, but just allow us to use your airport for nothing and that sort of thing. They're extremely... I think it's very dangerous. I think you've got to look look at treat them with great respect uh, because they've got some extraordinary ideas. For example, they now aim to have by 2049 a permanent station on the moon, permanently manned. And why? Because the moon looks at us, doesn't it? If if you control the moon, you maybe control part of space. So those are the sort of ambitions they've
0: got. What about Russia? I mean, again, you know, Putin seems to have given himself a lifetime presidency, but this is a country that economically is in very bad shape. Which you can't say the same for China. No,
2: no, I think I mean Putin is is a a dangerous man because he's he's absolutely determined that Russia will get back to where it was as the Soviet Union. He's on record as saying one of the worst things ever happened was the demise of the Soviet Union. He's also a worried man. And he's particularly worried, it's interesting, about China because the Chinese look across at the bit of Russia that, that bounds with their borders, which is almost empty, because most of the Russians live in the west of Russia. And they look at the empty land and they're already, I'm told, saying to the Russians, look, wouldn't you like us to set up a little village there and, and a little industry to give some people uh, a, a job? And of course, their aim is to get a bit of Russia and... and colonise it under the counter, and he's, he's worried
0: about that, absolutely dead worried about it. fitting in this uh, situation. I mean, everybody talks about cyberspace and talks mm. about technology, and we don't mm. need the number of troops we are. Mm. But I think the Western world, not so much the United States of America, but we are, I mean, our resources are so stretched now. Um, the military is too small. Absolutely, uh, or am I wrong on
1: that?
2: No, you're absolutely right. In fact, there was an article today in, in the in the Telegraph saying that this concentration on cyber takes your eye off the ball. In fact, it's a very good piece written by um, Robert Fox, which I got here, where he said the army gets equipped for digitised battlefield, and he ends it with, I think, the really um, perceptive comment: the future soldier plan, future soldier plan. Like most plans of battle, probably won't last much more than the first few minutes of contact with adverse reality. And actually, Robert is a very experienced war correspondent who's seen the face of battle close to. I mean, in the Falklands, he took part in three battalion attacks, which not many journalists can say they took right. part in, in, three, in a space of three days. And he then went to the Gulf. and He's a very experienced guy. And I think he's hit the nail on the head. We've got to be very careful. That the politicians don't say it's all going to be cyber in the future. And they see cyber warfare as a cheap option because people are so expensive uh, to cut the size of the armed forces. And we'll all do it by machines and oh boy, and it'll all be cyber. Well, I can tell you that the enemy always chooses your weakness as his the thing to attack. And if we can't act in a normal and conventional way, then that's where we'll be tested, I think.
0: Michael?
1: i have I've come to my
0: end, thank you I would like to add a few more bits and pieces if I may yes, um, the one of my issues, which I've been challenged and probably rightly criticized over, is that during the Obama administration for eight years, because of his dislike of the Russian set up the Russian regime and his loathing of Putin and also something similar towards China. He abrogated his responsibility as leader of the Western world in carrying on a dialogue with them, even if he hated them. Mm. Because your enemy, you've got to know him better than you know your friends, I Mm. think. And I think he's put the United States of America and the rest of the free world on the back foot. And I think this is reprehensible, and I think it was a serious error of judgment. Do you think I'm right or do you think I'm wrong?
2: Yes, I think he 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 was a misjudgment. You should never underestimate him. and you've got to keep talking. The only way you're going to find out really what is going on, or what's in your enemy's mind, is by talking to him. If you ignore him and pretend he doesn't
0: exist or try and blank him out, that's a great mistake. I think that's right. Well, anyway. Julian, we've had a wonderful half an hour with you. Most grateful to you for your insights. You've been a real treasure, in my word. The country owes you an awful lot for what you achieved. Going back to 1982 and and from there on. Bless you and thank you very much indeed.
1: Thank you very much. Indeed, thank you. Very, very interesting. Thank you very much indeed.